Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. When my first year of seminary, I was a, a night watchman. I was a night watchman in a uh, 12-story building in downtown Durham, North Carolina. And uh, usually, this was an uneventful duty station, usually, which really worked out well for me because once the doors were locked, it was a great place to read and study. But there was one time, however, when I was called upon to confront somebody, and I'll never forget it. Up on like the fourth or fifth floor of my building, Duke University had some sort of public health research department. And uh, they were often welcoming in people off of the streets to uh, take part in these research projects that they had going on. And so as you can imagine, there were all sorts of people that would come in and out of the building for these research projects uh, just to be a part of that. And I wouldn't recognize them, I wouldn't know who they were, Well, one particular gentleman, using that term loosely, uh, apparently, while he was taking part in one of these uh, research projects, he developed some itchy fingers. And uh, lo and behold, he spied one of the, the ladies in the office there, her cell phone lying on her desk, and he real quick snatched it up when no one was looking. And so guess who was tapped to come upstairs and confront this gentleman. Uh, It was, of course, me, the security guard. And uh, I always tried to look the part as a security guard. I would try to look sharp. You might say, well, that's not very uh, intimidating. But I would try to look as much like a police officer as I could, you know. I would dress real sharply, real sharp tie, nice sweater vest, whatever. Uh, I always tried to look very presentable because, you know, as a security guard, that's all you have. Right? I, didn't, I didn't have any weapon, I just had the authority of the badge and my cell phone in my pocket, just like anybody else. So as I'm being tapped to confront this guy, straighten my tie, I said a little prayer, and I got in the elevator to do my duty. By God's grace, I was able to confront this man, and I was able to get him to give back the cell phone. And then, after that, it was my further duty to escort this gentleman out of the building into the curb. Uh, And not only was I to escort him from the building, but I was to notify him that he was also being expelled from the research project that brought him there, which, by the way, promised some reward. I still remember that long elevator ride down as I was expelling him. I still remember how furious his girlfriend was, and I still remember that shameful look on his face as I ushered him out of the building. Expelled. Have you ever had to expel someone like me? Or, you know, it's, it's kind of easy for me to tell a story of me expelling someone else. Notice I didn't share with you a story of when I was expelled from somewhere, right? That's the more shameful story to tell. Have you been on the other side of the story? Have you been kicked out? Have you been expelled from somewhere? 
It's usually not the kind of story that you share publicly because it's full of grief, embarrassment, and shame. We're going to, in finishing up Genesis chapter 3 this morning, we're going to be reading about how Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And we, as a human race, were thrust out of paradise with them. We were thrust out of paradise into the wilderness with Adam and Eve. We were left there outside the garden to experience the consequences of the curse. And it's important to understand more than maybe you realize that this is a, a uh, position that persists for you and I even today. We have been thrust out of God's presence into the wilderness outside of the paradise of God like we were created to experience. We, all of us, have been driven out of paradise. And I've got a couple, two reasons here that we're going to look at. First of all, because of our forbidden or stolen knowledge of evil. Look at the text here in verse 22. It starts out by saying, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Who's the Lord talking to here when he says that the man has become like one of us? Well, I say this is another example of a dialogue within the Godhead. It's a, it's a conversation that God is having within the Trinity. It's a conversation he's having with himself, if you will. And God says to himself that Adam has become like us in that he now knows both good and evil. Now, at this point, I want to be absolutely clear about something. It, it is true that God does have knowledge of evil. Right? God knows all things. But there's one very important difference between the fact that God knows of evil and that Adam and Eve and we now know of evil. God has a knowledge of evil without himself being evil, right? He knows about evil, but he is not defiled by it. Adam and Eve, on the other hand, gained this knowledge of evil not by observing it from a distance in horror or with righteous indignation, but, but by firsthand experience. They learned of evil by doing something evil. Stephen J. Cole said it this way. He said, Now man knew evil like a cancer patient knows cancer. Whereas God knew evil like the cancer surgeon knows cancer. We know of sin and evil like a cancer patient knows about cancer. But God, his knowledge of evil does not defile him. He is more like the surgeon of the cancer. So even though in a certain sense Adam and Eve have become more like God in this knowledge, I would say in a deeper sense, they couldn't be more unlike God than they were in this moment, evidenced by what happens next. They, they are ushered out there. They are, I think the text says, driven out at one point in verse 24 of the garden to experience the consequences of the curse. I kind of find the reason that God gives here for why he's expelling Adam and Eve from the garden to be surprising. 
I was thinking about it this week, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of reasons that probably could have been listed, particularly more God-centered reasons, you know, that God is holy and that he must separate them from him because of their sin. But the, the reason that God lists here in verse 22 is this. Look at, it. Look at the second half of verse 22. God says, Now lest Adam reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. And then down in verse 24 it says something very similar, that God placed the cherubim and the flaming sword there at the east end of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. So the reason that's given here for why we were ushered out of the garden was so that we might not reach out our hand and take from the tree of life and experience eternal life. It's kind of interesting. The, the tree of life, let's talk about that a little bit. You remember back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, it talks about God planting this garden of Eden in the east. And it tells us especially about two trees that God planted. One of them being the tree of life, the other one being what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees planted in the midst of the garden. I like to imagine them in the very midst of the garden. And so God, in a sense here, was offering to Adam and Eve two choices. Choice of life in the tree of life or the choice of death in rebellion by eating from the tree that he told them not to eat from. And that's exactly how God warned them. He said, you may surely eat of every tree, including the tree of life, except do not eat from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The choice was theirs, life or death. And as we've studied over and over again here, as we've walked our way here through chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve tragically chose death. They tragically chose rebellion. God only gave them one prohibition and they crossed it. Therefore, God drove us away from this blessed source of life, the tree of life. And I think that ultimately what this is pointing to is that God is driving us away from himself, the source of life. You know, I ask myself all kinds of questions about this tree of life. You know, is the, is the power of the life in the fruit itself or is it only because God has said if you eat of this tree, you would have life? You know, these sorts of questions. These are the kind of questions I ask myself. Kind of unanswerable questions. I ask myself questions like, uh, if Adam and Eve, uh, had, had they been eating from this tree regularly, or was this like you eat one piece of the fruit and boom, you've got eternal life forever, right? These are the kinds of questions that come through my mind as I think about the tree of life. I mean, after all, God seems a little bit concerned here that, they might, that Adam might continue to reach out his, his hand and eat from the tree of life and live forever. But we don't know if that was like a, a one-time thing. Like, like I, I wonder if God put this tree of life in the garden but didn't tell them about it. Because we don't have any record of him saying, hey, there's a, there's a tree in here. If you find it and eat from it, you can live forever. We don't have a record of that. What we do have is that God says, hey, you can eat from all these trees, but just don't eat from this one. So did he not tell them about the tree of life? Was it there and they just hadn't found it yet? 
Or did they know it was there and they were kind of regularly eating from it and, and that's how they sustained their life? I don't know. But all those questions aren't really the point. I think the point of, of what God does tell us here is this, that God had provided for them life, eternal life, through a tree. And now as a consequence for their sin, he is ushering them away from that provision of life and ultimately away from himself, the giver of all life. In God's presence, there is life. Sin separates us from life because sin separates us from God. Sin always separates us from God. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to think that this transgression was no big deal, but it is a big deal. Sin is always a big deal. It always takes us further than we want to go, and it always separates us from the God who made us. I think even in this ushering out of us away from the tree of life, we see in this God's mercy, don't we? We see in this God's mercy because, think about it for just a moment. If Adam and Eve had come, had been allowed continued access to the tree of life, and with hearts full of wickedness had eaten from the tree of life, they would have experienced a heart full of wickedness that lived forever. How horrible would that be? Kent Hughes said it this way, that had God not driven us from the garden and kept us away from the tree of life, quote, the garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living and forever dead. So I think even in this, we see the mercy of God. Now, the text uses a couple of different expressions here for us being sent out. One is that we are sent out. That's sort of the weaker of the two expressions. And then in verse 23, there's the stronger expression that we were driven out. And I, I think taken, taking these two expressions at face value, we can come to this very basic conclusion Adam and Eve didn't want to leave, right? They, they were driven out of the garden. They didn't want to go. This was an occasion for bitter weeping and great anguish. I mean, imagine for a moment, just for a moment, back when you lived in your parents' household, maybe for some of you, you're still living in your parents' household. Imagine for a moment your father coming to you and saying, come on, let's go. This is it. Out you go. I mean, can you Im imagine what it would be like to be forever kicked out of your home by your father whom you loved? All because of something that you had done. I mean, I, I cannot even imagine the turmoil that Adam and Eve must have felt as God announced to them, it's time to go. Where are we going, they must have asked. Outside the garden and you can never come back. What? Never? You mean not even for a visit? Not even for Christmas or Thanksgiving? Not even to eat of the, the fruit of the trees? No. This is part of your consequence for your sin. We'll read in the very next chapter that outside in the wilderness, God would, by his mercy, come and visit with them. But there was no returning to the garden that God had made. 
None. And this is a grievous thing. You know, if you, if you look at artwork that Christians have done of this scene throughout the, the history of the church, Adam and Eve are always weeping and in anguish in this moment. It's as if God has not only closed the door, not only taken away the keys to the door, but it's as if he installed a security system that would never allow you back in. Look at what he does next. Verse 24. We see that not only have we been driven out, but the way back is barred by mighty cherubim. There's no way back in. Now, I don't know for certain, but I suspect that there must have been some natural borders around the Garden of Eden that sort of kept it protected as its own special sanctuary where God would meet with men. But we read here in this text that God stationed mighty cherubim on the east side of, of the garden, and that is where he expelled them out. So I imagine that there was either rivers or cliffs or something that in, sort of encircled the garden. It's all speculation. But then on the eastern edge, there must have been sort of an entrance and an exit to the garden. At the very least, it's to the east where God sends Adam and Eve out. He drives them out, and then he stations these mighty cherubim in a flaming sword to guard the way back in. What are cherubim? First of all, cherubim is plural for cherub. So maybe the question is, what is a cherub? You know, we often call a, a chubby little baby a cherub, don't we? Oh, he's my little cherub. But I can assure you that this is not what's being referred to here. The cherubim are mentioned 64 other times throughout the scriptures, but this is their first appearance here in Genesis chapter 3. And this appearance in Genesis chapter 3 as the guardians that kept us from the tree of life seems to set the tone for our relationship with them moving forward, does it not? Now listen, I could, have, I could have really preached a whole sermon on just the cherubim. This was a cool Bible study. If you have never done this, it's kind of a neat thing to look up these 64, 65 times in the Bible when cherubs are mentioned. If your picture of what an angel is or what a cherub is comes from a Hallmark movie, you need to do this Bible study, okay? Let me tell you, I, I tried to boil down what I learned about cherubim to just the bare minimum here, just three observations I want to give you this morning. First of all, cherubim are, impre are impressive in appearance. That's like, I, I really wrestled with the right synonym here, right? They were impressive, but honestly, when you read about them, especially in the book of Ezekiel, they appear strange to us, if I were to be honest. If you were to see a cherubim, it would be unlike anything you'd ever seen before. This is not a run-of-the-mill angel, right? A lot of times when angels appear to men in the Bible, sometimes they even appear as a man, right? And, and you're not even sure, is this a man that the Bible's talking about or is this an angel, right? It's very familiar to us. But every time we, we read about cherubims in the Bible, uh, their appearance is sort of strange to us. And to say it, Positively, it's impressive. 
Let me just give you a couple of examples about their appearance from the book of Ezekiel chapter 1. We learn that cherubim have four faces. A human face in front, a lion face to the right, an ox face to the left, and an eagle face behind. You want to talk, you ever had, had your mom or your teacher say, I have eyes on the back of my head? Cherubim really do, right? They, they have a face that faces all directions. And I, I really would love to get into talking about that more, but I'm resisting the urge, okay? And we'll, we'll have to return to that at another time. Another example of the appearance of these cherubim is that they have at least four wings. At least four wings. But they may have even had up to six. And so I'll just boil that down to say they were multi-winged. Now, I would just encourage you, if you want a more detailed description of the cherubim, I would direct you to the scriptures yourself. Ezekiel chapter 1 in particular, Ezekiel chapter 10, possibly Revelation chapter 4. And it, it's a, a good, I think, good idea to compare them with what Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 6. He calls those beings seraphim, but they sound awful similar to cherubim. And so... Let's boil this all down in our minds to, to at least realize that these are some mighty creatures, living creatures that God has made and that he ha is using now to guard the gar Garden of Eden. And secondly, I would say that every time we see cherubim in the scriptures, they are always a signal of God's immediate presence. God's immediate presence. Thus, if you were to read Ezekiel chapter 1, you would see that God appears to the prophet Ezekiel sitting in a chariot, a living chariot made up of cherubim. He's literally riding on the cherubim. And if you were to read Revelation chapter 4, you would read that there are living creatures there that sound an awful lot like the cherubim that we read in, in the book of Ezekiel. And they surround the throne of God in heaven. The immediate presence of God. Boom, there's cherubim all around. Also, if you were to study the construction of the tabernacle that Moses did out in the wilderness or the construction of the temple, which, you know, those two things are very similar that Solomon did, you'll learn very quickly that God instructed them to plaster cherubim all over the temple, all over the tabernacle as a signal to those who are entering in that, hey, this isn't just any tent. You are entering into the immediate presence of the most holy living God, right? They, if you read those descriptions of how they were to construct the tabernacle and the temple, you'll, you'll read about cherubim on the curtains and on the walls and on the pillars and all sorts of places, But in particular, as you read about what is referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, inside the, the Jewish temple, there's the outer courts, and as you step your way into the center of the temple, it gets more and more holy. And you have the holy place, right? And inside of the holy place, there's a, a veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place. And inside of the, the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. And all that was was basically a box that would 
carry the Ten Commandments, the covenant that God had made with his people. And over top of that ark was what was referred to as the mercy seat. And on either end of that mercy seat, guess what was there? Cherubim, carved and and covered in gold. And they were instructed to carve them in such a way that the, the two cherubim faced each other and that their wings were outstretched over the mercy seat. And God said that he would be there, not in the, the, the cherubim as if it were an idol, or not in the ark as if that were an idol, but God said he would speak to them from above the wings, the space in between the wings of the cherubim. And so you'll read in the scriptures, oftentimes in the Psalms, uh, that the Lord is often referred to as the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim. Speaking of the most holy place where God himself had them construct this ark with the cherubim wings and where he would, said he would appear to them. And it's all a copy of, of heavenly realities, right? The cherubim single, signal, I'm sorry, God's immediate presence. And lastly, I would say this. Cherubim are guardians of God's glory. That's how God employs them here in Genesis chapter 3. That's how they always seem to appear. And it's hard to imagine, but God's unspeakable majesty is somehow accented. It's somehow given a greater voice by the presence of these mighty creatures around him. He doesn't sit in heaven on a throne all by himself with nobody around him. No, he's created these mighty creatures that surround him and give him glory and even guard his, his glory. The psalmist that we read this morning, Psalm 84, verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. It's referring to the angelic hosts that surround him. And when we're talking about cherubim functioning as a guardian of God's glory, we not only see that here in Genesis chapter 3 as the, as the angels are guarding us from the tree of life, but we see it in the holy place within the temple Remember I mentioned that it gets more holy as you move to the middle. And in the holy place, there's a veil or a curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And do you know what's woven on that veil, on that curtain? Cherubim. And, and that curtain was usually drawn so that anyone who entered in there wouldn't inadvertently wander into the most holy place. There was a curtain embroidered with cherubim that was guarding the way. This was a a thick veil in the temple. And that's what makes it so incredible, I think, when we consider what happened immediately after Jesus died on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51, it says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain or the veil of the temple that was interwoven with these cherubim was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Isn't that incredible? When the moment that Jesus died on the cross, this veil in the temple that depicted cherubim's Guarding the the presence of God tore in two, thus opening the way into the holy of holies, access to God. It's as if 
God is taking a huge highlighter and saying, look, remember what happened back in Genesis chapter 3 when I ushered you out, when I drove you out of the garden and I kept you out with these mighty cherubim with a flaming sword? Well, guess what? What my son has just done has torn away past those mighty cherubim and trailed a, a, a blazing trail back to me. Jesus alone has blazed the trail back to our Heavenly Father by what He has done. And I could go on and on with the symbolism within the temple, all the ways that Jesus fulfills it, but we're just focusing right now in on that one piece of the temple. There is no other way to be ushered into the presence of God except through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And make no mistake, no one comes to the Father except through him. That's why John said in one of his epistles, he who has the Son has life. And the flip side of that is, he who does not have the Son does not have life. See, if we were cut off from life, uh, when we were ushered out of the garden, then only Jesus can usher us back in and provide for us that eternal life that we desire. And if this is what the death of Jesus did for us, ushering us in, imagine what the resurrection of Jesus from the dead accomplished for us. Jesus is the only one that can bring us that peace and that harmony, harmony with God that we once had that we long to have again and I, I just wonder this morning do you realize your position do you realize where you are that as, as wonderful as this life is at times and as beautiful as some places are on this planet do you realize that what you're experiencing now is the wilderness compared to the paradise of God we have been driven out as a human race. The way is barred by mighty cherubim, and yet our hearts still long for the garden of God. What is human life except for one giant pursuit of those things that can only be found in God's presence? We are, all of us, pursuing true happiness, true joy, true contentment, true wisdom, true life. Everybody's looking for it. The pursuit of happiness. And yet it always seems to be just out of reach. It's as if we're chasing after mirages in the desert. You know, you're out in the desert and you say, oh, there's water up ahead, right? And then you get there and you say, no, it's even further. And you keep going and it's so elusive and you never find it. Perhaps even more tragic than those whose search for paradise eludes them is those who long ago ceased looking at all. Maybe that describes you. We've settled instead for lesser delights, lesser paradises that just get us through the day. Perhaps even more tragic than that even is those who feel like they've already arrived in paradise. Maybe you say, hey, you know, I don't really get this. Life is pretty good for me. 
And I think that's perhaps why Jesus warned us that it is so hard to find the kingdom of God when you are caught up in the treasures of earth. The treasures of earth seem to almost shield us from the full brunt or the full reality of our, our true condition. It shields us from the curse. That's why I think Jesus said so often things like that there are many who are first who will be last, and there are many who are last who will be first. Perhaps this is why the poor and the downtrodden are particularly blessed of God. Go ask someone who is in utter poverty if this earth is a paradise. Ask somebody who doesn't have enough food for their next meal if they are living in a paradise. Ask someone who is sitting on their sick bed, facing a, an early death because of some illness, if this life is a paradise. Jesus often said that you are blessed if you realize these sorts of things. You are blessed if you are downtrodden because you are more likely to recognize that you are in the wilderness. What about you, Christian? Do you know that we are not home yet? Did you believe in Jesus so that he would give you your best life now? So that he would give you paradise here on earth? Did you know that it, it's the mark of a false teacher to promise you that God's going to return you to an Eden-like paradise in this life? That's like one of the, the cardinal marks of a far, false teacher. Excuse me. Make no mistake, Jesus will take us to paradise, those who place their faith in him and receive his forgiveness. But don't mislocate paradise, right? Paradise is in heaven. It is not here on earth yet. If you want to know when paradise is going to come to earth, then read Revelation 22, which Rich read for us this morning in our New Testament reading. There you will read of when paradise comes to earth, when God comes to earth and when he makes all things new. And we even see there the reemergence of the tree of life. I really truly believe that, that God is not only taking us back to the Garden of Eden, but he is leading us forward into something even greater than the Garden of Eden. God has had a plan since the beginning, since before the beginning. He created us in a, a wonderful paradise and he knew that we would fall into sin. And then all this mess from Genesis chapter 3, clear through Genesis I'm sorry, Revelations 20. All that mess in between is worth it. God felt it was worth it to lead us to the paradise that is yet to come. So don't settle for paradise here on earth. Set your hopes completely on the paradise that is yet to come. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 1, I've been meditating on 1 Peter 1, trying to memorize it. Peter starts his letter by blessing God for all the amazing things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's giving us 
a, a living hope. He's given us an imperishable inheritance, and he is himself guarding us until the day of our salvation. And in this we greatly rejoice. But Peter warns us, he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I think we need to hear the warning of Scripture that grievous trials will come. But Peter goes on to say that these trials have a purpose that God is allowing them to prove the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire. And then down in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter gives us this commandment. He says to us, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are not home yet, Christian. Don't be deceived by those who, who promise false paradises. And neither allow yourself to be troubled, but rather set your mind securely, completely, on the hope that is yet to be revealed to you, the grace that is yet to be revealed to you, in and through Jesus Christ, on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for who you are, God. You are a mighty God.